other skills that we will be developing in this class. So in a general helping model, we have really kind of three stages that we talk about. The first stage Excuse me for just a second. The first stage uh, um, is exploration. Uh, and this is where And this is where we get to know the specifics about a client's problem or a client's situation. Now, um, you know, even in our modern times, when we, when we have things as, such as diagnostic uh, uh, criteria and uh, definitions of, for example, ad addiction and domestic violence and whatnot, we always have to keep in mind that those events all happen on what we call the idiosyncratic level or the individual level. Um, I, I will tell you, um, you know, at the time I was doing domestic violence advocacy, domestic violence work, there were never two cases of domestic violence that were the same. Um, even though they may have the same ideology, they may have had, you know, power and control issues, they may have had all of those things, the situation that led them to that problem or to that event or to that abusive relationship was never quite the same between individuals. And so every time, uh, even though they all follow the same kind of patterns of domestic violence, you always had to take every case on its individual merit and its individual level and the person's subjective reality of what's going on. And that's really the problem when we're at this kind of theory level of stuff, when we're at this, you know, uh, understanding, for example, the process of domestic violence or the process of addiction or, or any of those things is that we take it from the objective level, what we see occurring in patterns within a group of people. But when we're really at the helping level, the individual helping level, what we should be interested in is the subjective experience of the individual about how they experience those patterns, about how they went through the, 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 the event. And that takes an incredible, incredible lot, <laughs> an incredible amount of listening and attending and reflection and all of those skills that are really important for effective um, helping, which we will go over today um, in, in part of this lecture. So every case should start with exploration. If we take this to, for example, the social work level, this is where we do our psychosocial history. If we do it on the counseling level, this is where we take the client's history and their experience of events. Um, and what we want is, even if it's not based on general models or something, what we want is for the client to go to some insight to why they are where they're at, what led the individual there, what experiences did they come with, 
What background did they have to lead to some type of insight? Now, sometimes, ultimately, we want our clients to come to this insight themselves. Sometimes it comes facilitated by the helper in the group process. And one of the advantage of the group uh, process is it can it can occur through insights from other members of the group. So that's one of the advantages of, of, of group process. Now, this should then lead to some action, some actionable things that the client can do. And so if we go back to the cognitive behavioral approach, exploration is identifying triggers and behaviors. Insight is understanding those triggers and understanding when they occur. Action is then some way to either put in some kind of thought stopper, some type of behavioral technique, uh, and some type of intervention from preventing that trigger from uh, igniting the behavior. And, you know, for example, with addiction, as we went through. Now, you'll notice that this model is put in kind of a Venn diagram because, you know, exploration leads to insight, then leads to action, really doesn't just, it, that's more of a linear model, right? We usually always start with exploration, and then it leads to an initial insight that then leads to an action. But a lot of times what you'll discover in the helping processes and helping people is maybe this exploration and insight was just the, the top of the iceberg. And that there might be, based on the initial exploration and insight and action plan, there might be a lot more things that we need to explore that will lead to a lot more insight and action. And so once we go through the initial process, if you wanna think about this, this is the intake or clinical assessment. This is kind of quote unquote, the diagnosis. And then this is the initial treatment plan that, that we put into play. This is all stage one type of stuff. But as we'll see, when we get into group work, once we get through these initial stages, more things need to be explored, more insights need to be made, and further action plans will develop from that. So this is a dynamic type of process that we're introducing. Um, with the insight stage, uh, I mentioned centered focus uh, theory, which is which is the, the the humanistic. It started with Carl Rogers, um, and uh, what 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 is noted about being centered focus is it's the focus on internal factors, not external factors. A person's experience is important, and how they experience their external world is important. And within these treatment modalities, it is the person's experience, not our interpretation. It's not other people's, uh, what they're saying that matters. For the therapist, for the, 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 the facilitator, we always should take a person's internal experience at face value because that is, has what become um, their reality. Now, a lot of uh, 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 
especially novice providers will state or people who haven't been fully trained in the helping arts and the helping fields will, will say, well, uh, what if the client is just trying to manipulate me? What if the client is just saying this so that they can get through the program so they could be released from court order or something like that? And I don't disagree that that happens. Uh, but what I am going to say is if these skills are fully developed, those things are less likely to occur. Um, I've seen novice providers be manipulated. It happens. But the more skills that the provider has over what I've seen as clinically supervising and even what I've seen in research, this, the less likely it is that the, the, the client will manipulate in order to get out of, you know, that therapy, to get on with their court stuff, whatever it may be. So what I'm going to say on this is guided by internal factors, not external, taking the client's reality as reality is really dependent on the relationship that therapist or that counselor or that facilitator is able to build with that client. And if the client feels safe and they feel like they will be supported, they feel like you are genuinely there to help, the less likely they're going to give the quote unquote BS in order to get out of whatever it, whatever it is they're there for. Um, also centered guided, centered focus uh, theory says that we have innate blueprints or sets of potentialities that can be developed. This, is, this comes to a term, a more modern term that I really like, and this is approaching individuals with a growth mindset. Instead of focusing on the negative qualities of the client, growth mindset focuses on those strengths that then can be built from, okay? And the third quality of centered focus theory is that everyone is motivated to become a complete person, okay? And we have to recognize that the reason why a lot of our the individuals we work with are stuck or they might have a false sense of who they are is because of the challenges they experience in the world, the trauma they experience in the world, the health and, and well-being issues that they, that they um, uh, experience in the world. And if in the counseling setting, we can take those challenges away, at least momentarily, but we also will work on those, especially if we're good social workers, but in that setting, if we can take that away, we start to see the tendency of that person and who they truly want to be. Um, I remember working a lot with female inmates and they would always go in and come in and say, I see nothing wrong with my lifestyle. I am who I am. I know who I am. Um, and all those types of things that, you know, they don't see, you know, the problem with the lifestyle that they've been living to, that guided them there. But then setting up an environment where I say, okay, I accept that. Tell me more. I want to know more about you. A lot of the times that shifts over sessions 
where they then start to realize that, you know, living an addictive lifestyle or living a criminal lifestyle or living the way they are isn't really who they want to be. It's what their environment and their situation set them up to be. Um, now, we have to fully admit, especially as social workers and social scientists and everything else, counselors, therapists, we may not be able to fix their environment or fix the, the, the social uh, pressures that they have, the legal pressures that they have, if that's the situation. But in those moments when they're with us, we can give them the potentiality of who they really want to be. Um, and that hopefully with other skill development through your treatment group or your, your, your counseling or your social work group with them uh, and working on those other factors, if we can keep that motivation of self-actualization of who they really actually want to be, that's the best combination for people to actually create and develop change in their life. All issues arrive through congruency between the real and the imagined self. And this kind of goes back to kind of what I just said, right? Whoops. Um, is that, you know, that we have this idea of who we think we are, which is the imagined self. And sometimes that comes with congruency or incongruency with who we really are and who we really have the potential to be. And these two factors, as I put when we were talking about humanistic theory, has to be congruent with each other. And as some of you have mentioned uh, with your work with clients, you've seen the further these are apart, uh, the more difficult it is to work with individuals. So those are kind of some four principles of centered focus theory. Um, but here is kind of the, the things that need to be put in place for this to work in the initial phases, okay? The first one is the client and the helper must have a psychological contract. And that means that there is trust between the two, that the client knows your boundaries. So it's uh, everything is, for example, everything is confidential. Nothing will be told outside this room unless there's, uh, you know, uh, commonly in most states, it's uh, danger to self, danger to vulnerable adults or danger to children, right? And so there has to be this trust where there's these boundaries that are set um, and that uh, uh, both have boundaries. Um, I will tell you that uh, most of the time when I've seen therapists get unethical with their clients, do unethical behaviors with their clients is because in the initial phases of treatment, either the therapist didn't establish good, clear boundaries or boundaries were never discussed with the client other than the release form that the, the provider has them sign. So, um, and most of the time as a, as a clinical supervisor and as administrative supervisors, whenever I got complaints or in some cases 
ended up in a courtroom, that really is what it came down to is those boundaries weren't clear. There was no psychological contract between the two. Um, the second one is that the client must be in a state of congruency. And what I mean by this is the client must be there and in a state of awareness. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of, and, and, and understandably, a lot of addiction programs that say, don't come if you're intoxicated or have been using. Um, uh, I have ended a lot of sessions short with groups and stuff when there's a lot of trauma or a lot of social issues going on with the clients or the clients in the group. Um, I've excused group members before because they just couldn't be there. They couldn't be there in the situation with their problem in, in there as well. In addition to that, the helper must be in a congruent, genuine state and integrated in the relationship, meaning that there, there's a term called flow. And flow is a state of being where the person who is doing some type of performance, some type of uh, um, action is a better word. And in that moment, there is nothing except for that action that exists. It's almost like the entire room disappears, uh, the, the, the person's past, current problems, um, everything disappears. And all that's there is the individual and the task at hand, okay? And I've talked to a lot of trainees about this. That is the state we wanna be in when we're working with clients. We want to be there and nothing else in that space matters except for that relationship you have. Um, some of the groups I've had and in, in when going into flow and everything is when we're all in a circle and we're all talking and I come to some awareness that it's almost like the rest of the room is totally dark and totally black and it's just me and those group members there interacting with each other. That is a state of congruency and integration with the, with the relationship you're having with your client. And that's where action and change really can take place. Number four, is getting to a position where as a provider, we have unconditional positive regard, okay? I will be completely honest with you. Um, there has been situations where I have worked with people where I've said this individual needs to be reassigned to somebody else, or this group member needs to attend a different group session because I knew I couldn't provide that person with unconditional positive regard due to my own life situations. And in that situation, I cannot be an effective helper. I cannot provide that person an unbiased perspective. And that is something that 
that one of the skills that I hope that you'll all work on developing and that we'll go over in this course is one of the first things about being an effective helper, an effective group facilitator, is having the self-realization enough to know your own biases, your own prejudices, and our own discriminations, because we all have them. Um, I've been told uh, um, the, the old saying that uh, about skin color, I don't see color, I don't see skin color. Well, that statement, and I apologize for the non-academic term for that, that statement in and of itself is bullshit. Because just by making that statement, you are making color an issue. You are stating that it is an issue. And that you're hiding the idea that you must not see what's going on, even though you're seeing all of those things because you're saying you don't see them. And so the whole idea of things like color blindness, uh, things like um, uh, even dealing with nationality and all of those things, even when you say you don't see those things, guess what? You are seeing them. Um, and you need to have the foresight to really dig down and say, why did I make that statement? Most of the time uh, that, that, that I've done this with clinical trainees that I've been training, it's because they're actually uncomfortable with their own biases and prejudices. And those statements tend to be ways of deflecting their own prejudices and bias and discriminations. And so we got to look out for those blanket statements and whatnot, because uh, the fact is, is that uh, we are born to categorize and then we are also born to see differences between people based on different factors. So, and, and uh, coming to the state to realize when you can and cannot provide someone with effective helping is a very important skill. The other thing is, is that uh, uh, we have to provide empathy for, for clients. Um, there is something in the field uh, for social work and social service providers, and it's called like the three-year wall, where people get out with your education, you go into the field, you start working, and most people go in the field because they want to create positive change. They want to create a difference in the world, but in the field of social services, those changes we can actually see, see are small and incremental. They don't just happen because I saw 100 clients this week. They just don't happen because I, I made sure that my clients have the resources they need. And a lot of times our clients, we just don't see those successes the way we expect to when we go into our education or get into the field. And there's something called the three-year wall in, in social services where we hit this wall and uh, we, we, we want to quit. We want to change. And there's three different paths that people take. One path one is people get out of the field because they realize they're just, they don't know. They just, they're tired, they're burnt out. They're exhausted. It's having tolls on their personal life. Path two is they become those uh, robotic people that we often deal with 
down at the social service claims office who, uh, instead of helping, say, fill out this form, and if you ask them any question, they say, just read the form. You can, you know, they become those cold social service providers. They become those people who are just there for that paycheck. Option three is the successful social service providers. These are the people who come to the realization, to the old adage, there's an old set saying that you could lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, okay? This is the, the idea that you can provide somebody with the great environment for growth and development. You can provide someone with the skills they need to be successful. You can provide someone with all of those things, but ultimately it's not up to you to make that change. But because you have provided that opportunity, the words, I didn't know better, or I didn't know, don't work anymore for the individual. They, they just don't have that excuse anymore, even though they'll use it uh, sometimes. Um, and this is, this is where I came in when I was working again in the female prison system. When there was a new inmate that was coming through and I started working with them, I always said, okay, this one's on me as a provider. So I gave them the skills. I gave them the opportunity to learn more about themselves. I gave them that opportunity. But if that client recidivated and they came back to me, I would say, that's on you, not me this time. And so what are you going to do differently? Because I've already done my part in trying to help. And those become the most successful uh, providers, when you realize that, yes, we are um, people who can plant seeds of growth, but we can't make that seed grow. That is up to the people we help once we provided the opportunity. The other thing that needs to happen is not only do we need to provide unconditional positive regard, empathy for our client, our client has to experience that. They have to see us emotional when there's emotions that need to be emitted. They need to see us listen. They need to see us attend to them. They need us to reflect to them their experiences, and we have to give opportunity for them to correct us when we're wrong. And so these are the six keys to kind of the centered focus helping theory um, and the skills that need to be developed in order to do that. Okay, is there any questions on these first two slides or any comments? I, I would love comments too because we have some very insightful uh, individuals in this class. Is there any comments or any questions about these first couple slides? Um, hi, can you hear me? Yes. This is Naomi. So the part that you said, we are people who can plant seeds, but we can't make them that seed grow. I've been in recovery and I've um, sat on the other side as far as facilitating some groups. Uh -huh. And I think that the whole aspect of the, like the serenity prayer 
kind of comes in like we just think that we just don't have control over and when we facilitate we need to take that same mindset say that there's things that we we can control and then we can't control so that's Mm -hmm. what that reminded me of and and that's a perfect example of especially when it comes to the helper we should maybe take that serenity prayer into take is that yes you're absolutely right there's some things we have control over and there's some things we don't the main thing we don't have control over is the decisions and choices that our clients have to make right klein you have your hand up um yes uh, i have experience where a new group is starting and as we begin to introduce ourselves and and so on the um i i get the feeling of the individual the clients they're they're so they, they have been so used to be being told what to do who they are what their problem is and to give them that um, the center focus theory where you're in charge you get to tell us what's wrong. You get to express your feeling. Uh, something I think new to them because, as I was saying, they have been told so long. This is who you are. This is your problem. This is how you should uh, look at yourself. And then having something new like this does work. I feel a lot better when I use this this kind of technique or theory. That's great. Thanks for that feedback. And I think uh, your experiences are well taken in, in, the, in the idea that, you know, we do have, if, if you look at the way our social and cultural systems are, are set up, they're all a list of things you should and should not do, right? But those lists aren't always helpful when it comes to an individual's subjective or or, or individual experiences and to have this opportunity as Klein stated to actually be heard and understood from that perspective is excellent. So thank you for that comment, Klein. That's an excellent addition. Um, and then I do just wanna mention uh, in the chat, uh, Nelly put not right now being mindful of boundaries as an area of growth, uh, not over uh, giving and understanding people needs to be their own work. And Nellie, I, I would say to your point that, you know, uh, uh, when I've worked with a lot of providers, especially on the administrative level, and I had to deal with burnout, um, and I had to deal with um, uh, other mental health issues with my providers, that has been uh, one of the number one reasons for those things is becoming over invested and not understanding your own boundaries with your client. Um, uh, and again, I'll, I'll go back to the, the prison sit- setting. It was always the, the uh, provider uh, who became so overly invested in their client's life that they ended up doing things very unethically. Um, in some situations, it was the person ending up sleeping with the inmate, for example. And this is just one example, or uh, going to the inmate's home uh, and, and, and trying to talk their family into doing visitation. And in some cases, I saw where helpers even went to the extent of 
of uh, um, um, taking illegal contraband into the prison for their clients because they thought and their clients made them think that they were helping them so much by being so invested in them that the therapist themselves is the one that ended up being manipulated in the end. And so that's, that's a very specific example, but even in the other fields, such as working with domestic violence and even child sexual abuse, I've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of therapists because of not understanding their own boundaries uh, that they became the ones that ended up hurt as well. So your, your, your comments are well taken and, and very good. I'm glad that you're on that path to, to understanding that. And then Kathleen, I notice you have your hand up. So I just want to know like your thoughts on because we've got to know our biases and you know and our prejudice, but they're gonna have they they might have some on against us also though, right? Yes, and and that's one thing uh, to understand, and and that's one of the reasons why we want to explore our own prejudices and discriminations, because when we're honest about ours it makes us easier to identify the ones in our clients. Not that we should dictate what they are or say, hey, I think you think um, I'm, I'm racist or something like that. I'm not saying that, but then you can work with that. You can, you can understand it. And you know, um, especially dealing uh, when you're dealing with the, the, the criminal field, when you're dealing with people who are from low income uh, areas, um, if you're dealing with minority or fringe people, they are going to come to us, uh, and I guarantee it, with a lot of prejudices. And uh, because of their negative experience with our fields, um, as I said, there's, there's those three paths, and unfortunately, a lot of people at that three mark year mark who do not belong in our field stay in our field. Um, and they create those negative experiences for our clients. And, um, and, and so uh, that's something we have to be aware of is that uh, just as, she, as, as this comment was just made, is that we have to understand we're not always uh, viewed as the quote unquote hero. We're not always viewed as the helper. A lot of times, uh, especially when we're working with with traumatized and uh, fringed and minority groups, we're working with people who have lots of discriminations because of their experiences with people in our field, with people who, who have rejected them. Um, you know, and so, and again, though, uh, going back to the center-focused approach, that's where that congruency and making that connection with them comes into play, creating that authentic relationship. And I will tell you that over time, probably one good way that you can gauge um, uh, uh, that you actually have developed a good relationship with your clients is when in the third, fourth, or fifth session, they will fully admit to you, and in a group setting, trust me, they'll admit it in front of some everyone, they will tell you exactly what they originally thought about you. Um, I've been called a lot of names <laughs> during this process, 
and uh, and and I've I've been I've been told during the process, oh, we thought you were just another white guy out to get us. As an example, I've been told that uh, I'm just there because I have a superiority complex, and that's what they thought in the beginning. I've been told that uh, I'm only there because it's probably the only job I could get. I, I mean, I've been told so many things from clients, but I want everyone to realize when clients tell you those things, guess what? You're doing good. And as Klein said, even positive and negative things. If clients can openly tell you what they actually think about you, you're on the right track. And so, and, and, and as Klein said, he's, he's experienced that as well. So keep those things in mind that, that, that when clients are actually starting to be able to express their own biases and their own prejudice towards you, uh, that, that's a good thing. And Ava's uh, saying the same thing, so that's good. All right, any other questions on, on this relationship building part with clients? Okay. So let's go to. I, I have a question. Yes. Um, did you ever come into uh, a client where they just got like a, a vibe, like a, like a, a like a, uh, not a good vibe, a bad vibe from you from just the way uh, you approach them or the way you talk to them or just your body gestures your like did you have them like ever come into that where they just like they knew it right off and then they said you know they said it to you they said I I know judging by whatever or like I know that we're not going to get along or it's not going to work because for whatever reason and then they'll like leave or something like that. Do you ever do you ever come into that where it, it was just like maybe a minute of contact and then they didn't want to? Yes. Um, and and I will tell you that there there is not a therapist or counselor or social worker that I know that has not experienced that. Um, I have had clients reassigned for me just because I I never had the opportunity to try and make those connections. Um, the, 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 there's a couple things to this though too, is, is um, one, when that happens, we shouldn't just idly set back and say, well, they must've just hated me, that's on them. We should always go back and review um, kind of how did I approach them? How did I go about this? What did I do? Um, now, again, we're going to experience rejection from everyone, from someone during our life, regardless of the effort we put in. And that's just part of this field. There is just going to be people who just don't want anything to do with you. And we have to accept that. But we can improve it on the situations where we might have the opportunity to um, um, uh, uh, change. So I'll give an example working in the field of domestic violence. So the majority of people I worked with were women. 
and the majority of women that I worked with were abused most of the time, most of their life by men. And so a lot of times the last thing that they wanted was a man in as their helper, as their counselor or their advocate or, or not, or whatnot. And that was always my biggest barrier in that field. Um, but I learned not always, it didn't always work. And we got to keep this in mind. I learned that it has a lot to do with me and how I approach uh, individuals. Um, and I, I learned over time that when I start seeing fear and in a client's eyes, or when I started seeing what's going on, um, I always changed my posture. Um, in this case, I always sat below their eye level. So our eyes were never at the same level. I sat below them, for example. Um, in other situations, I, another thing that I learned is it was important that my client never be waiting in my office or my therapy space, that they should enter first and choose where they wanted to sit. And in that place, they had a choice to where they could sit openly with me, or that there can be a barrier between us, or there could be lots of distance between us. And so I learned that I needed to set up my situation because I know, knew that those the, there was those biases about me because of being a male. Uh, another time that I, I will say in my personal experience, I ran into this issue is, and we, we all do it. Um, I'm sorry, everybody in this field, anybody in any field at one time will think that they're quote unquote, and I'm sorry for the non-academic terms, the shit, that they're just damn good at what they do. And that can create a lot of mental blocks for the helper when they think that what's happening in the therapy room is just because of them, because they are great at what they do. Um, and in that situation, uh, and when I started getting that kind of ego, is also when I was rejected the most by clients and where clients didn't want to work with me. And so what I would say to that is, one, there's always going to be a proportion of people who just you just can't get through to, who just aren't going to work with you. But I am going to say the vast majority of people who instantly want you out of their life in my experience, has to do with me more than them because I'm not respecting their experience, where they come from. Or, and I think Klein brought this up or, or Ava or Nelly or someone brought this up where uh, I felt I already knew what they needed and how they needed help. Um, um, and so, the, you know, you don't even need to bother telling me your story. I've heard it over and over and over. Those kind of attitudes. And I will tell you, I, I haven't come across a provider who hasn't gone through that, whether it be a couple days or a couple years, or unfortunately, for some time, people, it's a career. Um, and so those are the dynamics we have to play with. And one of the things that we have to be very cognizant of is identifying when, a, when you're just not connecting with a client because there's just so many difference between you and them. And so they should be reassigned. 
versus have I done enough self-reflection and enough work to know that I just cannot build a relationship with this person despite all my skill level or, or lack thereof. And so it kind of is a two-way streak, street, not streak, street, excuse me, um, in, in, in self-understanding that a lot of times there's things you can do to build that relationship, but then also enough self-understanding to realize for some people, there's just no connection you'll be able to make with them in order to make this a successful helping relationship. Does that answer your question or is there a more exp uh, specific experience you were thinking of? No, you answered my question. Thank you. Great, great. Any other questions on this? Okay. So as I mentioned, probably the two skills that um, really have to be developed, and I'll be honest, most helpers have problems with this, because a lot of people go into the helping field, genuinely so, thinking that we are, they're a good listener and they're a good attender. Why? Because all of their family comes to them with their problems or everybody in school came to, and so we have this idea, hey, I am good at these skills. Um, and, and there are, and I will fully admit, there is some individuals, a small set of individuals that are naturally good at attending and listening. Um, but for the mass majority of us, uh, these are skills that are probably the two most difficult ones to develop, okay? So I kind of want to talk about attending, okay? And attending is about making sure that the, that the client or the group members feel like the only thing that matters in that moment is them, that you are there for them to understand them, okay? And so there is this acronym ENCOURAGES, and I do have to say the first one that we need to start with is cultural differences, okay? Is in all of these other acronyms, we always have to take into account that there are cultures or cultural differences that we need to pay attention to. Because in some cultures, eye contact is, is not something that uh, is comfortable. It's not something that is acceptable. Um, uh, I remember working with, uh, and I apologize, I forget the group of individuals I worked with, but it was inappropriate for the female to make eye contact with males. And I, I apologize, I can't remember uh, the culture that this person came from, but I didn't know that. And so I spent the entire session <laughs> trying, to, trying to get some type of eye contact to know that in my intention was for her to know that I was paying attention. For her, I was creating an incredibly uncomfortable environment. Um, and so I bring up this example because when you are trying all of these things, you do have to adjust them based on your client's responses to your attempts to try these things.
uh, because there's always there there may always be a cultural underpinning to some of these. Okay, but eye contact uh, in general, and again in general, uh, not taking culture differences into perspective, is one way that we show that we're attending and that we're paying attention to them. And the thing about eye contact is it doesn't need to be sustained. It doesn't need to be something where you're just glancing into someone's eye and completely, you know, uh, completely trying to sustain eye contact. When we talk about eye contact, it's when you at least with each of your group members, as long as, again, they don't instantly shy away because of C, that in a group session, in you, you should try to make eye contact with each group member at least a couple times. And even if it's from one to three seconds. Um, and the, the, there's a neurological basis for this unless culture is playing a role is that when we have initial authentic eye contact with somebody, our eyes actually dilate and our occipital lobe pays specific attention to that moment, that, that, that what they're attending to. And it tends to create that kind of emotional social connection with people, okay? The N is for nods. Nods is just that uh, when someone is talking and they're telling a story, it's that, kind of shaking your head up and down or just providing some type of physical thing that even though they may be telling an extended story, you are still there in that moment and that you're still going, uh-huh, I understand, okay, okay. Not necessarily verbalizing it like I have to do over Zoom, but just giving some uh, facial recognition beside your eyes that you're there and you're present. And again, we got to talk about cultural uh, precedents when we come to open stances, okay? Uh, and the mistake people make with open stances is there, there's dominating open stances, and then there are submissive helping and understanding open stances. So, um, for example, uh, culturally, especially in the Western culture, a male putting his arms out and, and over his head is a sign of dominance. And so that's an inappropriate open stance. What we mean by open stance is that you're not sitting there with your arms folded and your legs crossed, unless of course um, uh, you're wearing a skirt or something uh, that, that appropriately uh, requires a, a, a leg cross. It means that your arms are out um, that they're either to your side or they're on your lap, but they're not folded. Uh, that your legs, uh, even when they're crossed, they seem relaxed. They seem there, they seem moment. And that the person doesn't feel like they're being closed off to you. And so that's what we mean by doing an open stance. This was actually the hardest one for me to, to, to really develop one of them, no, there's a lot of them, uh, because my natural stance when I'm in a group, when I'm just there and it's, and it's just more relaxing to me, it's smoothing to me when I'm in a social situation is to cross my arms 
and hold them there just because it's soothing to me. Um, and so when I first started facilitating groups, I, I mean, literally all my supervisors would come in and almost slap my arms down, uh, my clinical supervisors, or we'd be playing a video and they'd pause it and say, look what you're doing, <laughs> look what you're doing. And, and uh, realizing that in uh, one time a, a supervisor said, look how your arms are folded like this. And then let's look at the expression of the group members in your group on this recorded group thing. And I realized that none of the group members were actually attending to the group. Most of them were looking at other people. They were looking across the room. Some of them were looking at the snacks, but none of them were actually there. And then he showed me a video of when I didn't have my arms crossed. And I was lent, leaned forward, looking at my clients and engaging them. And in that still scene, everybody was focused in on the group circle, okay? Second one is relax, okay? This is another tough one, especially for, especially for new facilitators, is it's not that you want to be slouched down and all this, it's that you want to have a flexible, non-rigid body posture. So you want to be able to uh, express yourself without being rigid, okay? Avoid distracting behaviors. Um, and so um, this is, you know, you know, I've done a lot of groups where uh, it might be in a church, for example, and there might be a, a youth program that walks by um, or some other thing that is going on in the building uh, uh, at the office or something. And it's really easy. And even the group, especially in the group setting, everyone will orient towards whatever's going on. Um, but as the facilitator, your job is to be cognizant of that and bring everybody back and try to bring that distracting behavior away from the group's uh, process. Grammatical style. And uh, this, is, this is one that uh, I always face. I did it myself, um, but also when I uh, was uh, clinically training people freshly out of their, their college, um, especially when I was working with bachelor degrees, uh, individuals who just learned all of this new cool terminology within social work or psychology or wherever it may come from. And they've learned all these kind of cool words, right? And, and when they get into the group setting and the client setting, they want to maintain those, those kind of fancy words like cognition or, or psychoanalysis or whatever it may be. Um, and, and one thing to train out of us is getting away from that academic wording, that academic setting, or those terms that we use in our profession, and use the words that our clients use. Now, this isn't, this isn't one of the things that, that, that especially new providers ask, well, isn't this dumbing their experience down? And the answer to that is, is no, it's not. It's meeting your client and using the language they have and they use because that's their experience. 
And the again, I go back to the client-centered approach. The only person's experience at that time that matters is not yours, it's your client's. And the way they understand things is the way we need to take that from and use. Ears. Ears is all about uh, uh, being able to listen without thinking. And we'll get to this in a minute when we get to listening skills. So I'm going to kind of put a star by this one um, because it's an important one that we'll get to. Space and space appropriately. As I said, one of the things that I learned, especially because I was a male and I was working mostly with female victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, even within the group setting, when I was setting up a group space, I would not put the chairs up. Um, I would not put the, the group setting where it would be. What I would do is everyone would arrive and I would say something, okay, what we want to do is create a semicircle or we want to create a circle. And I'd have the clients go get the chairs and establish them where they felt most comfortable. As I mentioned, when I was working with individuals, I always set up my office to where there were options for clients. So there was a place where we could sit face to face and close to each other. I always had a space where they could set a barrier such as a desk between me and them. I always had an option where I had a, a chair in a corner and I had a chair there. And, and whenever they sat in that corner chair, I knew I needed to sit at a distance. And so having that space um, is important. And probably um, I'll talk to, I'll talk about, uh, oh, let me see what time it is. Okay, we're 4.01, so I'll, I'll finish with this for today. One of the areas that I've seen um, mistakes being made is, is for, I don't even, I'm going to put this this way, for uh, very nurturing women and for very nurturing men, um, uh, and I only say this because I found more nurturing women than men, so it, it's mainly in my experience been women, but I have seen men make the same mistake, is the need to touch someone when they're when when that person is feeling distress um as a supervisor uh, a lot of clients who want to be reassigned even if they're in the fifth tenth or sixteenth week of a group or in therapy is they've come to my office and said i just i don't like the touching i don't like the hugging i don't like the those things um, and, and, and I, and I say this for very nurt because nurturing people have that need to provide not only psychological comfort, but some type of physical comfort. And even though the touching may be completely appropriate, might be a touch on a hand or a touch on a shoulder. Uh, in some cases, it was a full blown hug. It was, uh, holding their arms close and, and trying to soothe them in the most inappropriate cases. Uh, but we have to be cognizant when we look at space about our physical being. This is where the, the, 
the therapist or the helper needs to be cognizant of our own needs. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, uh, um, um, uh, I am kind of on that end where I have that urge when I see someone crying, I need to go rub their shoulder or give them a hug or do something like that. And it, it did take me a long while to hold those urges back. In fact, um, in most intense uh, support groups, I kind of went um, against the open stance component. And there, there, there was times in the group setting where I kind of sat on my hands because I had such an urge to just do some type of physical soothing, such as uh, you know, holding a hand or, or rubbing the shoulder or something, um, because I was feeling such emotions and empathy. Uh, but I came to realize that that was to satisfy my own needs. Those are my own urges. Those are my own uh, things that I need to, to have. And it's not appropriate as me as a professional to be soothing myself instead of being there for my client. Um, now, I will say, you know, there is some ethical guidelines behind client touch uh, that, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of ethics that say, you know, the therapist should never uh, hug or, or touch their client. Um, I will tell you that uh, in my experience working clinically, um, I always found it acceptable for a hug or a handshake, especially if it was initiated by the client, if I didn't see nonverbal cues on the side of my therapist or the, who I was supervising that they were trying to approach that behavior, and then it, it cued the, the client to do that behavior, and it didn't last for an extended period of time. Um, um, and so with that being said, there's, there's human variation and everything, and there has been times when um, uh, somebody just needs a shoulder to cry on, but it needs, when it comes to touch, it has to be guided by the client. It has to not violate your boundaries and it has to be authentic. Meaning if you're not a hugger or if you're not someone into physical touch, that's a boundary you need to make sure you establish with your client and make them comfortable with. And so that's where I am, uh, where, where, where I've experienced touch. And the literature actually speaks to the same thing, that yes, ethically, we should never initiate physical comforting with a client. But if it's not cued by the, by the therapist or the counselor, and it's uh, uh, approached from the client, and it's done in an appropriate way, then that is, that, that's acceptable. So... Okay, guys, we are getting to the, the near of our class, and I don't want to start in on listening skills because I just don't think we will finish it in the time we have left. We have about nine minutes. So I am going to stop sharing here, and I'm just going to ask, does anybody have any questions at this moment? Thank you, Anna and Marissa and Gretchen.